What is the Gen AI opportunity in tax? Here are some thoughts from EY and Real-Time Insights. Tax has always been an area of heavy data and heavy rules. Generative AI opens up an opportunity for tax professionals to use natural language that they're comfortable using to query the data, to ask different questions, and provide new business insights. Learn more at ey.com. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. And I'm Tracy Alloway. Tracy, I'm not sure if you remember, but we did an episode recently in, in the outro and like someone tweeted about this. I think your final line was, it's pretty good to be a landlord. Like we were talking I, about rent and you're like, eh, it seems good to be a landlord. I stand by it. Yeah. I can't believe I'm getting criticized no, for no, throwing no, no. out these uh, truth bombs. It's, no. it's good to be a landlord. No, I, th- I don't think it's even a criticism. It's like sometimes the truest things are the obvious things that no one says directly and that someone just says like, it seems pretty good. And like rent prices, as we've been discussing, like they never seem to go down. There are all kinds of tax advantages, it seems like, to owning real estate. Uh, it's hard to build more of it. Um, it seems pretty good. It seems good. Um, I guess my question is, was it always this good? And yeah. will it always be this good? Because, right. I mean, the reason we're talking about it is because it does feel like there is a backlash at the moment or more of a backlash. I guess landlords are never an especially beloved um, social class, but with prices being what they are at the moment, with rents going up, particularly in places like New York City, it does feel like there is this question of whether or not maybe the government, the state could do something to attenuate those uh, higher rent prices. I guess there's like two questions to my mind about the sort of like whether it's good to be a landlord. And one is like, okay, we do know that like probably like rent growth is going to slow. And we talked to the guy from apartment list, Chris Salviati several weeks Mm -hmm. ago. And he's like, okay, probably like rents are going to come down a bit maybe or flat or maybe not grow, but like that's just a cycle thing. Right. And then there's the question of like, is there something deeper that's not just about like the macroeconomic cycle, but is something going to like change about the business? And you know, like, One thing that I sort of still kind of believe in markets is that, like, if there's, like, alpha somewhere, if there's above market returns, it can't stay forever. Eventually, like, it's got to get armed away, right? I think maybe I'm a little bit more cynical than you. (laughs) I think people will try to to hang on to their price advantage as long as they possibly can. Yeah. No, I mean, I agree. It's just like... They can't be like some business that's just like permanently better than all the other businesses, <laughs> right? Like, it's not how markets or capitalism are supposed to work. Like, capital is supposed to flood in or supply is supposed to come on. And eventually, the returns from asset A on a risk-adjusted basis should equal the returns from asset B also, you know, on a vol-adjusted basis or something like well, that. Well, I guess this is where we start talking about real-world constraints yes. and policy constraints yeah. again. But yes, in theory, it should change. Right. And so we have been, you know, talking about, you know, real estate quite a lot. And I do think that in this sort of like pandemic slash post-pandemic environment, lots of anxiety about real estate, not just like high, you know, high costs, 
um, are a huge aspect of it. Availability, the types of real estate that people want. Mm -hmm. And so it's like a good question to like, how good has the landlord market been? And if we're at a period where a lot of things are changing, rates are reversing a I was about year. to say, I think interest yeah. rates are going to be the big factor here. Leverage, huge aspect of the real estate business reversing. Can, can the golden age of being a landlord persist if many other macro things and political things are changing? Is it still good to be a landlord? Is it still good to be a landlord? All right. Well, I'm very excited about about our guest. We're going to be speaking with uh, Ben Carlos Typen. He is a real estate investor and broker in New York City, and he has a lot of views on this question and why maybe the golden age is coming to an end or will. So, uh, Ben, thank you so much for coming on Odd Lots. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. So before we can even ask the question, is the golden age of being a landlord coming to an end, we have to first establish was there really a golden age? And I guess the question, the way I think about that, is it true that uh, real estate owners, landlords, people who rented out their units, enjoyed a period of unusually high and stable returns? Yeah. So, I mean, I, first, I think it's important to make a distinction between different types of real estate owners. So okay. there's you know, residential uh, rental landlords and commercial landlords and even homeowners. I'm going to talk today mostly about residential landlords and homeowners. And you are a residential I am, landlord. I am a residential landlord in addition to being a commercial landlord. And I'm also uh, also a, a broker that deals with a lot of other residential landlords and investors okay. uh, on a daily basis. So what is this goal? Tell, tell us, establish for us that there, in fact, has been a golden age. So I think in order to understand there's a golden age, you, you have to understand the history that preceded it. Okay. Uh, so you know, there's this great paper by uh, this professor, uh, Katarina Knoll from the University of Bonn, that looks at the ho housing prices over time from 1870 to present. And uh, she studies 14 countries, including the United States. And what she found is that up until around 1950, depends on the country, um, in the United States, it was probably the late 60s, uh, housing prices were relatively flat. Uh, and then after that, they've exploded. Uh, and you know, that's housing housing data, um, rent and otherwise, is, is notoriously difficult to to capture because it's a uh, such a disparate um, distributed market. Uh, but you know that backs up with qualitative uh, observations as well. So like there's this great book that I recommend everyone read about the history of these New York City real estate families called Skyscraper Dreams. Hmm. And there's a recurring theme in this book of sort of the residential, um, the families that specialize in apartment buildings complaining about not being at, getting as rich as quickly as the office developers huh. or the office landlords because, um, you know, partly because of rent control, but it, it was just a, a sleepier business. Um, so what changed in the mid, mid 20th century? A couple different things. We, we're all familiar, I imagine, with the story of like the subsidization of homeowners and single-family homes in the suburbs. Uh, and simultaneously, as that was occurring, in uh, terms of the public's investment in the apartment business and rental uh, housing, uh, it shifted from public housing to uh, private sector solutions. Whether it's um, you know Freddie Mac subsidizing multifamily developers or mm. um, even you know nonprofit developers. Uh, in si simultaneously with that, land use controls were implemented to protect the investments of homeowners. That would, that's sort of the, the best, the most generous way to describe it. It also did things like enforce de facto segregation and, and um, school segregation and all sorts of other um, less, uh, less noble things. So 
in the late 70s, after all this had happened for a decade or two, what you had is this coalition form of homeowners and conservative interests, both you know business and otherwise, uh, teaming up to pare back rent regulations where they existed, ban them where they didn't exist, and um, generally implement a set of policies that discriminated against uh, renters either directly uh, via things like a property tax policy or um, indirectly because most uh, renters at that time were of um, you know some sort of marginalized status uh, socioeconomically. So um, you know, they also pared back the state's ability to regulate uh, landlords, both in practice, but um, I'd say more crucially in terms of state capacity to you know actually effectively punish landlords for misbehavior. So for instance, in the original um, rent stabilization program in New York City, there was a way for the uh, buildings, um, if they were uh, violating certain standards, um, to be uh, you know, their rents to be you know pared back, and 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 the the state could take to take control of these buildings in a more assertive way. Huh. That that was then that was then removed. So let's you know before I get to like the more specific con- consequences, let's talk about like what that actually created from a market structure perspective. Homeowners become this very powerful political block. Their relative permanence increases their pr- uh, propensity to vote, uh, and they team up with conservative interests to weaken the state. The idea that everyone becomes a homeowner becomes gospel, and homes become used as investments. Uh, but this was always sort of a Ponzi scheme because you know the you're protecting the investments by putting up barriers to entry. Uh, so you know one generation buys in, gets rich off of it, and then housing prices get too expensive, so that the next generation can't buy in, or if they do, they're buying in a much more um, vulnerable terms. Burdensome. Yeah, you know, they're uh, higher higher loan to values. The the values themselves are arguably inflated. Um, So all this leaves the rental market uh, as a market with essentially unlimited demand, Mm. uh, a growing pool of of participants on on the the demand side, uh, and, you know, unlike other utility markets, which is basically what housing is, it's vastly and wildly unregulated. Mm. So it would be like, you know, Enron in the in the early 2000s and late 90s that was just going wild on deregulated energy markets, except we've been doing it all over wow. the country for decades. generative AI impact the way financial services firms work? Here are some thoughts from EY and Real-Time Business. At an enterprise level, how will it impact the way we work? Just like how internet changed all our lives, this technology has the potential to have a step change in how we fundamentally operate. But, uh, let me give you a few examples of what some of the use cases our clients are exploring. We are seeing our clients explore a few knowledge management use cases. For example, in in case of wealth and asset management, providing their financial advisors with right information so that they can serve their clients better. Similarly, a claims agent in insurance or a contact center representative in case of banking and capital markets. The, The theme that we are seeing is where the machine comes in and provides contextual insights to enable the humans make better decisions, better actions, in a faster manner. Learn more at ey.com. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. 
It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Can I just ask a really basic question? But like, if you're a landlord, how are you making most of your money? Is it by getting the monthly rent or is it by building up a real estate portfolio and then selling it or flipping it at some point in time? Like, what is the mix? And I know you made the point about the difference between mom and pop landlords versus the big corporations. Can you just talk a little bit more about the different business models? Sure. So partly that depends on the the uh, business model of the landlord, but also depends on the market. So New York City is much more of a appreciation-based market mm. Um, mm. than a than a rent than a yield market. Um, whereas you know someplace uh, in you know the Sun Belt might be more yield focused than appreciation focused. So in New York City, you typically make your money um, selling mm-hmm. or refinancing um, or by generating scale. Scale obviously helps in uh, in every market. Um, whereas uh, you know in in other um, less uh, core markets, the um, more of the return is in the yield. And I, I, this is a good segue into sort of the other dynamic that, that produced this situation is that, you know, we have this vast unregulated rental market and simultaneously we have an institutionalization of the business of multifamily. And this is kind of a, you know, this is a broader economic trend, you know, that happened with, with corporations in the, the latter half of the 20th century. Um, and even with, with um, other sectors of real estate. So like, 20 years ago or 30 years ago, the self-storage business was was a very mom and pop business, right. but now it's this hugely institutionalized business. So this has happened in a particular acute way in multifamily um, because of just how big of a market it is, uh, how long-standing of a business it is, and uh, how relatively homogeneous the product is. Well, I was going to say, too, I mean, I know like if, if there is this inherent challenge of creating new units and everyone and we talk about like the you know the sort of barriers to entry i have to imagine that scale becomes a very big advantage in knowing how to navigate these permitting uh, certain like how do you do construction in new york city the entities that have done it over and over and over again have to have a pretty significant advantage over a smaller less institutionalized I mean, I get there's a difference between developer and yeah. uh, landlord, but it just feels like with all of these things, there must be uh, quite quite a few advantages to scale on this type of stuff. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a, a difference between uh, landlords and, and developers, right. but I think to your, your broader point is correct, which is, uh, and this has been particularly enabled by um, by technology, uh, you know, this used to be a very inefficient business. Hmm. And the institutionalization has sucked all of the inefficiency out of this business um, through, you know, uh, technology um, that has been implemented to, uh, you know, um, price rents more efficiently, um, the disaggregation of functions. So, you know, historically, um, you know, the apartment owners were, you know, 
everyone was sort of in the same company. And now all these different roles have been distributed into other companies, they're specialists that provide third-party services. It's, it's, it's become a, a business where everyone is getting their cut uh, and scale um, puts you in the best position to um, you know, reap the, the benefits of economies of scale. So your argument is that um, you know a, a process beginning, I guess, in the 1950s of deregula- deregulation combined with institutionalization of the rental market starts to change the profit dynamics for landlords. Can you talk a little bit more about exactly how that happens and how it sort of develops up until, um, I guess, today? It's really demographic driven. Uh, you know, it was designed to serve um, this you know growing class of homeowners. Um, uh, a growing class of college graduates enters the the real estate business. Um, you know, historically, it was you know a business that a lot of people without that much education could get into, uh, and um, they you know start applying modern business processes to um, pricing units more effect, uh, efficiently, to um, operating the buildings more efficiently, uh, just picking at every possible part of the business to extract profit out of it. That has served. The industry very well, but it has not served, uh, arguably, the the greater public very well. And I think that's sort of where these dynamics that uh, the, these twin dynamics of uh, demographic change prompting policy and um, technology prompting institutionalization are now going to f- uh, flip back the other way, and we're starting to see the beginnings of that. So I want to obviously like talk about this flip and some of the demographics and all that. But before I do, can you just expand? You made one point about disparate. Uh, property tax treatment that you right. said like put renters at a disadvantage. Can you clarify like what is in the code that is so advantage or advantageous to landlords? Sure. So as a general matter, uh, around the United States, homeowners um, are viewed as a, the most important political block uh, in any you know jurisdiction, and their property taxes are kept low, uh, and particularly the the increases in their property taxes. So. Um, municipalities really have very few uh, levers for generating revenue in, in this country, so they typically they, they need some place to make up the revenue. So, uh, as a result, apartment buildings start taking on a larger and larger share of the burden. This works different ways in different um, jurisdictions, but in New York City, for instance, uh, buildings over 11 units make up an increasing share of the uh, revenue um, for taxes. This also applies to uh, to commercial properties, whereas buildings of one to three units have uh, artificial or you know, caps on the amount that their assessment can grow every hmm. year, uh, and even buildings of four to eleven units, excuse me, four to ten units also have caps. Although, albeit, is not not as good as the one to three families, which is sort of a, a reflection of the same political dynamic in that the people that at least policymakers believed, own these small apartment buildings are closer to a voter. It's sort of your, your yeoman, your landlord, <laughs> not not the, the big bad landlord. Hmm. So these groups have um, been given uh, preferential property tax treatment and the uh, apartment buildings and uh, in turn their uh, residents have been getting uh, increasingly uh, unfavorable property tax treatment. So... The landlord business, what exactly are the risks that landlords are taking on and how should they be compensated for that? Because when I think of a landlord, it's like, okay, maybe you have a bad tenant who doesn't pay their rent on time. That's a little bit of a risk. But in general, it feels like there are a lot of protections around the business. And it also feels like there's a tendency for real estate prices to mostly go up, especially in New York. 
Right. So um, dealing with you know problematic tenants, uh, and also you know operational increases. So if, let's talk about the tenant side. The tenant side that varies widely um, from landlord to landlord. So you know our our tenants generally speaking are pretty wealthy. Um, I have never had to evict someone. Um, well, hmm. and uh, you know we we rarely have issues. Um, Whereas there's lots of landlords that um, have, uh, you know, tenants that are have a more marginalized um, socioeconomic status, uh, and um, that's trickier. However, the demand for that is is um, very high, and the yields that those properties trade for are generally higher. So their landlords are are compensated for that risk. And furthermore, um, with the institution and the growth of Section Eight um, rental subsidies. A lot of these, um, the rents being marginal, uh, being uh, paid by marginalized tenants, are effectively underwritten by the government. So, you know, how much risk is a landlord really taking on a Section Eight building, um, from from a tenancy perspective? From the perspective of operating expenses, um, as as we talked about, property taxes, um, you know, are are being constrained in in some cases, but in in other cases they are not, uh, and that's you know where operational efficiency comes in. So, you know, operational costs are. Uh, the most important cost for landlords to um, uh, control, and in some ways, they're in their least amount of control. So, at least with uh, financing costs, you have some decision over when you make that, when you incur that cost. Mm. But mm. for you know, fuel uh, maintenance, like you really don't. I mean, maintenance to a lesser degree, but fuel and, and other more recurring costs, you don't have as much control. I was just so I want to ask about um, financing because, of course, you know, we sort of talked about in the intro, lots of things are shifting, and one thing that seems to be shifting is like maybe this forty-year steady decline in interest rates. Can you talk a little bit about from your experience, like your mix of like equity borrowing, etc. And if there is, uh, you know, this like sustained reversal, what does that do to your economics? Um, well, it doesn't do that much, or it won't do that much to my economics because I'm gonna get out of this business. But uh, the, <laughs> you're gonna uh, stop being a landlord altogether. I'm gonna stop being. It's a, that bad. I'm gonna stop being. It's not so much. It's bad. I, we can get into yeah, the reasons why further. But like, I think going forward, certain types of. Um, players in this business are going to make money mm. are going to make sort of above average returns and the rest will make you know utility or bond like returns and if i'm going to buy a bond i'd rather buy tips uh and if i'm going to invest i you know i'd rather invest in real estate that is less management intensive than um residential well example. okay just before we get because this is the heart of the question why you want to get out but before we get to that yeah were you staying yeah in? can you talk so, a little yeah, bit yeah. about so, yeah, so, so on financing I, you know i think you know as you pointed out we, we've been you know coming out of uh this you know 40-year period where interest yeah. rates have been very low um and a lot of business models have been built on um you know very cheap capital uh and um as a result, yields have become very low in certain markets, really most markets. Um, and I think that's a particular challenge in markets uh, that um, were depending on one of two things, uh, regulatory arbitrage um, and uh, appreciation. So in, you know, we talked about the difference between markets in which the 
main component of the return is yield versus the mm-hmm. versus appreciation. The yield markets they're going to not be as challenged from a sort of um, you know being able to sell for the right price perspective. Certainly, some people will, uh, but. Um, a market like New York City, that's a little more challenging because if you buy at a 5% return uh, and you finance that at a 3.5% return and you're assuming that you're going to be able to sell that at a 4.5% or you were when you bought it four years ago, that's not a realistic assumption anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, depending on your leverage level, you have uh, a different set of options to uh, either um, continue uh, on or, or extricate yourself from that situation. generative AI impact the way financial services firms work? Here are some thoughts from EY and real-time business. At an enterprise level, how will it impact the way we work? Just like how internet changed all our lives, this technology has the potential to have a step change in how we fundamentally operate. But let me give you a few examples of what some of the use cases our clients are exploring. We are seeing our clients explore a few knowledge management use cases. For example, in in case of wealth and asset management, providing their financial advisors with right information so that they can serve their clients better. Similarly, a claims agent in insurance or a contact center representative in case of banking and capital markets. The, The theme that we are seeing is where the machine comes in and provides contextual insights to enable the humans make better decisions, better actions, in a faster manner. Learn more at ey.com. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Can you talk a little bit more about what you see changing now other than the higher interest rates? Like, what is the mix that is going to pressure the the rental business? Sure. So, you know, we have this, the demographic decisions, the demographic-driven policy decisions that were made in, in the mid to late 20th century are now coming home to roost. You have this growing class of renters. Mm. Um, you know, you have increasing rent burdens, evictions are destroying lives, just like foreclosures are. And mo- I think most crucially, this crisis is now including uh, people from that very powerful political block. Insofar as, you know, people of my generation, uh, and our generation really, yeah. uh, who would have been homeowners 30 years ago, mm. are now not going to be homeowners. Or if they are, they're going to pay much more for it and buy become homeowners much later in life and view it more as a as a um, housing cost stability vehicle mm-hmm. um, you know there's this there's this uh, joke about 
the 30-year mortgage being uh, homeowner rent control. Yeah. Um, and I think that sort of logic is now seeping into the homeownership market and it's becoming less of a, um, slowly, becoming a, a less of a gambling market. So you now have this big demographic of people um, that uh, are concerned with uh, rental costs. So this, is, this seems really key, which is that politicians have this idea of like, what a good voter is, what a good citizen is like. And for years, that person was a homeowner. Right. And now the basic idea is that there is becoming a meaningful voting, politically influential block that is much more likely today to be a tenant than a homeowner than they were 30 years ago. And so the political wins are over time. It's like, oh, the voters, these like this ideal voter is not necessarily a homeowner. Right. And, and it's also, um, you know, the, that sort of, new renter block is teaming up with the old renter block because mm. it's not like we didn't have renters and they weren't organized right, before right. it's just that you know politicians could sort of ignore them because they're or um because they're of a marginalized background or because they are perceived to not vote as much or what whatever reasons they came up with so this is manifesting itself in two and a half different ways one is the Yimby movement, which for those are, who are not familiar is the Yes on My Backyard movement, which advocates for building um, more housing, particularly in um, high demand areas. Uh, arguably, it's a successor movement to the uh, fair housing movement from, from the late 20th century. Uh, I um, was one of the founders of the, the biggest group that does this in New York City called Open New York. Um, and in parallel, we have a resurgence of the rent regulation uh, movement and sort of broad tenant protection movement more broadly. And I think it's important to keep in mind that like America is pretty unique in being a uh, developed country and having vastly unregulated rental market. Like um, we have, you know, an unusually low home ownership rate, contrary to what people think. Um, but unlike countries with similarly low home ownership rates, uh, we typically don't have rent control. So like Germany has comparably uh, low home ownership rates, they have rent controls. France has comparably low uh, home ownership rates, they just uh, Paris just reinstituted them. So, um, you know, we've seen this resurgence of, um, you know, rent regulation, and even in not just in places like New York and California, but um, in Minnesota, in um, even in Orlando, they had something on the ballot this last year. Uh, and um, I think this uh, is a good segue in for, for both of these into how the consequences of institutionalization, mm. um, because institutionalization has created um, real estate entities that are much better targets of organizing from a political perspective. Mm. You know, they might not be, you know, Blackstone might not be as vulnerable as your mom and pop landlord for organizing an individual building, but in terms of like getting policy passed mm. and creating a, a political coalition, it's much more compelling. This is interesting, you know, like I, you hear like labor people talk about like, actually it's kind of good that Amazon is becoming a huge employer because if you can get unions into Amazon warehouses, you've radically like changed the American labor market. Or so at least you have one identifiable yeah, entity to yeah. target, right? And so then if you have these big institutional landlords, then like you have a, right, I hadn't thought about that. Which like is, you have a thing to organize against. It's also already sort of happening because you hear so much um, nowadays about institutional investors buying up single family houses right. for rent or for flipping purposes. Right, and, and it's not like single family landlords didn't exist before, right. but now we're talking about it because it's Wall Street. Yeah, uh, and um, the the third uh, I'll get into the third one in, in a moment, but this is also a um, a function of technology. 
because uh, the same tech, similar technologies that made it easier for institutions to be created and, and organize themselves are now making it easier to um, you know organize among mm. tenants. Yeah. Uh, and you know historically, if you if a bunch of people in different buildings all over the city lived, had under different or were living under the same landlord, like how are they going to find each other? But now, you know, there's all this public data. There's the you know the, the internet. Um, there's all different ways for people to get together and, and build coalitions that didn't exist before. Can I ask you? You know, you mentioned uh, the MB movement. We talked about some of this on a recent episode, and you're a part of an organization. You know, I see all the tweets and stuff. Can you talk specifically about like? how it's moving the dial like beyond the tweets sure. so that it actually is affecting the economics of the business. Sure. Um, I mean, I, I'll first talk about how it's affecting the politics. Like in, in California, you know, they've passed a, a bunch of huge uh, laws. You know, they've banned single family zoning. They've upzoned, you know, commercial corridors all over the state. Um, in New York State, the governor recently came out with proposals to build 800,000 new homes over the next decade, which is uh, over double the amount that was built the last decade. Um, and in terms of the economics of the business, I think what it's um, mainly changed so far is um, where developers are willing to take chances on trying to rezone. Um, it hasn't so much changed mm. the economics of the um, of the sort of your as of right typical day to day development because there hasn't you know the Imbium was very young and ha there hasn't been that much built yet but now a developer might be more likely to take a take a chance on a on a rezoning in a rich neighborhood which actually is going to be much more profitable that for them but would have um, than than doing a poor neighborhood but was seen as uh, very politically challenging because uh, like Open New York got. The got Soho and Noho rezoned for housing, which people thought never would happen. So, it's it's mainly changing the sort of uh, political environment for participants in the real estate industry that are um, involved in in development and uh, the actual economics of being a landlord haven't changed uh, in a um, direct way. It's been more disparate, like you saw in the journal recently came up with this big story that everyone was reading about how rents have uh, fallen over the country because supply, so much supply is coming yeah. online. Mm. You know, the MB movement can take some credit for that, but, um, you know, it's also just these developers are responding to, to market signals that, you know, there's not enough supply. It feels to me like there's still a lot of institutional capital flowing into this business. I mean, certainly we've talked about, um, you know, the big players who are snapping up single family homes and, and that's been a major talking point for a couple of years now. But why is it, why does the industry presumably still see the rental market as a profitable one? Like there still seems to be a lot of interest and money flowing into the space and presumably it's coming in at, you know, the type of yields and values that we've seen in previous decades. I think it, the industry sees uh, the industry, or excuse me, the the multifamily market for uh, as a profitable opportunity for all the reasons we've been talking about. There's, the demand is insatiable. Uh, there are controls on how much supply can be added, and um, it's a very capital intensive business. Um, so it's a good way to deploy capital. Uh, I'm not suggesting that there's going to be some sort of crash. Um, in fact, I think institutionalization will continue apace because institutions have uh, a lower cost of capital than your mom and pops, and they have the the um, economies of scale and ability to execute, so that they can make money in this environment. Um, and I, or in, in this, this sort of new environment that I'm positing, and they 
uh, are one of groups, and I think just representative of, of uh, the big group more broadly that's going to make money in this environment, which is that people that can actually add value. Hmm. So institutions are adding value from scale, um, operational efficiency, developers are adding value from actually producing housing. What I'm the people that I think are going to be the losers in this uh, scenario, or relative losers, are um, landlords, um, you know, of which there are many, uh, that are really have really just been riding rents and not really like rentiers. adding much. Yeah, the the, the the purest rentiers in the market. Can you talk about the other prong um, when you say the return of sort of like tenants' rights? Whether mm. it, what is is it rent control? Is it oh, yeah. eviction can, restrictions? Like what does that look like in the year twenty twenty three? Can I tack on to that? Which is you mentioned the tax code, and of course there are a lot of tax in, tax benefits that are meant to incentivize home ownership. And I've often this might be a weird question, but I've often wondered like. Why don't renters get some tax breaks? You know, it's not really optional to pay your rent. Um, anyway, no, I, I completely uh, agree, Tracy. Uh, and you know, the, the biggest ex the biggest expenditure of the federal government on housing is the homeowners interest deduction or mortgage interest deduction. And you know, there's various ways that that could be replicated um, because I, I doubt it's going to be paired back. Uh, um, for renters, it could be universal section eight. It could be some sort of renter tax credit. I don't know, but I, I think you know, as as this um, demographic uh, shift uh, portends political coalitions and change, um, that will uh, that's certainly on the menu of things. Uh, just like Joe uh, mentioned, what happens in uh, in where, what order is going to uh, vary widely based on the state. So. Um, in New York State, the big uh, push right now uh, is for good cause eviction, which um, is sort of a very light touch rent regulation. Uh, that passed in California in 2018. It passed in Oregon. Um, they have it in, uh, in D.C., a couple other places. Uh, they had it in New Jersey since the 1970s. Um, and uh, that, so I think that sort of thing. So wait, sorry, what is good cause eviction? Good cause eviction is basically defense in an eviction case that uh, if a landlord, um, if a tenant defaults on the lease a, and the landlord has raised their rent by, this is defined differently in different place, places, an unconscionable amount, okay. the, the tenant can use that as a defense for not being evicted. Mm. Um, and this is um, you know, particularly valuable theoretically in instances in which um, a uh, let's say the conditions in the building are really bad, a tenant complains, uh, and then the landlord says, oh, you know, I'm just not going to renew your lease, or I'm going to give you a huge rent increase so that, that you don't renew That is a de facto eviction. Right. So um, that sort of soft rent regulation, I think, is is, is going to become more prevalent. Um, you know, the, the Supreme Court could certainly, um, you know, change some of this, but I think in the main, there's different ways that, uh, uh, many different ways that um, tenants' rights can be increased whether it's some form of rent control to um, right to counsel, to universal section eight um, or, or, or vouchers. Um, and the point is, is that there's a growing political coalition to agitate for these measures, whatever they may be in, in uh, a given political environment. So if you're no longer a landlord, um, you, well, first of all, how, how serious are you about that statement? And then secondly, what, what do you do instead? So um, I am still a landlord. This is not going to be a, a fire sale. And you know, I, I will always be a landlord because we, we are still commercial landlords. 
but um, you know, it, it's going to be an orderly liquidation uh, because you know I, I don't. This is really a secular shift. It's not. This is not going to happen overnight, and plenty of people disagree with me. Um, so they're they're welcome to buy my properties. Uh, I think from <laughs> we inadvertently like this episode is just call call Ben. He, he has properties for sale. Uh, but I think from a brokerage perspective, you know, I'll, I'll continue to work with. Um, you know, players that I think are uh, either, you know, want to get out as a result of this dynamic or um, institutions that, you know, I think will, will benefit or developers. But what I'm most interested in and I'm working on a lot right now uh, is trying to figure out ways to um, bet on this dynamic um, and short, uh, essentially. Shorting the real estate business generally and, and apartments in particular is historically been very challenging mm. um, because, you know, maybe you can short read stock, but like it, it's not a it's not a um, that liquid of a market, and um, we're working on what we think are very uh, creative ways to um, to to bet on well, this dynamic. Well, let me ask you. You know, you said okay, you're not really necessarily expecting a crash, but on the other hand, like you know, and we talked about this in an episode uh, several weeks ago with Connor Sen. This idea that like everyone just assumed it's always a winner for the, some of the reasons you described is just like this secular shift, people moving to the cities. It's always one, it, even the great financial crisis didn't hit rent. Like if you think about like, well, what is the short case? How much of it is it that groupthink essentially within the sort of rentier class or the landlord class, just like refusing to see the writing on the wall? And is there just sort of I don't mean a bubble in the price sense, but a bubble in this sort of like thinking through that something could actually change in a way that we haven't seen in decades. Well, I, I never want to underestimate the ability of flows to impact a market. Um, You're speaking Tracy's language. <laughs> <laughs> that Literally. said, um, I I think it it's a question of uh, um, whether it is a who this is a winner for. Yeah. And I don't mean, you know, tenants versus landlords. I mean, within sort of the, the investment market. So like, if you're a, you know, in the capital allocation business and you want to be a bond investor or a fixed income investor, I think multifamily is going to continue to be a great business. But if you want to earn these sort of bonanza returns that you've been earning for the past um, several decades um, without doing much work, yeah. then other sectors of real estate might be a better option for you or, or other sectors entirely. I just have one question, and it sort of um, connects this conversation with the one we had with Chris Salviati about rents um, actually moving. What advice do you have for people who are trying to uh, negotiate their rent with their landlord oh, down, obviously, not up? Um, every situation is specific, uh, so I, I'll do my best to generalize, but I think you have more leverage than you think, uh, generally speaking, um, if only because a landlord, if you if you leave, a landlord probably loses a month of rent. Um, so at the very least, you should factor that month month of uh, loss in rent and maybe even a broker fee uh, into what um, you know you're negotiating for. Hmm. All right, uh, Ben Carlos Typen, thank you so much for coming on Odd Lots and uh, good luck in your new endeavors. And I hope uh, I hope you timed the market well with this episode. Thanks for having me.
Tracy, I thought that was really fascinating. And, you know, just this idea, it's like, yes, there's obviously certain like market changes, mm -hmm. supply and demand, interest rates and all that. But also this idea of like political changes seem really important here. Yeah. And maybe not something that investors are really thinking about that much. Well, a couple of things there. So one, I think it's always like, it, it's always a bit difficult to call a secular shift yeah. in something. But if you're going to do it, the sort of post-pandemic environment, yeah. when there does seem to be a lot of momentum behind, you know, the labor class yeah. versus the capitalists, that seems to be the time to do it. Well, and also it's like, you know, you and I rent in New York City and we probably know a lot of people, uh, friends who are like professionals and have good salaries, et cetera, and who rent and who feel that like buying is very risky or unattainable or like put, you know, they can't haven't saved up for a down payment or for whatever reason. And it's so like this idea that it's like, well, like this is like a very, you know, uh, there's the traditional, like sort of like uh, more a marginalized renter mm -hmm. class, more professionalized. And so like this coming together seems like a very like potentially like powerful macro secular trend. Yeah. But the key thing I think is always going to be the policy and whether or yeah. not you do start to see those sort of institutional protections yeah. for renters like you do in some other countries. And I yeah. know, I, I think we've spoken about Germany We're and gonna Austria before. We're going to have to do a Germany before. episode, aren't we? Oh, Austria. Austria. Oh, do you, yeah, okay. Why the Austrian rental oh, yeah, yeah. market is so different to the U.S. Let's do that. And also that point about like, there is a, a big institutional face mm -hmm. of landlords. I thought it was like super fascinating. And so the way that like Amazon becomes yeah. a good, or Starbucks becomes a target of labor organizing, you start to have this similar dynamics with uh, tenant organizing. Never underestimate the power of a scapegoat. Yeah, totally. All right, shall we leave it there? Let's leave it there. This has been another episode of the Odd Thoughts Podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. Follow our guest, Ben Carlos Typen. He's at SoBendito. Slide into his DMs, make an offer on one of his uh, buildings. <laughs> but if you're listening to him making the bear case, I don't really know why you'd want to. Follow our producers, Carmen Rodriguez at Carmen Armin and Dash Bennett at Dashbot and check out all of our podcasts under the handle at podcasts. And for more Odd Lots content, go to Bloomberg.com slash Odd Lots, where we post transcripts, Tracy and I blog, and we have a weekly newsletter that comes out every Friday. Thanks for listening. It's Tracy Alloway and Joe Weisenthal. We are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast, and we want to tell you about a new podcast and video series you are not going to want to miss. The Deal, co-hosted by Yankees legend Alex Rodriguez. Every week, A-Rod and Bloomberg reporter Jason Kelly speak with big-time athletes, entertainers, and executives. Like Maria Sharapova, Michael Strahan, Derek Jeter, and more. The Deal takes you behind the scenes into the world of sports, media, and entertainment. And dives into the wins, losses, and lessons learned along the way. From Bloomberg Podcasts and Bloomberg Originals, you can listen to The Deal on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also watch it on Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Originals on YouTube.